Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. It's a pleasure to welcome you to today's Beeson Podcast. And today we have a new feature of the Beeson Podcast that we're beginning You know, we have a lot of interviews on the podcast, and once a month, Dr. Robert Smith and I introduce a great sermon, past or present. But today, we begin a new series of great lectures that were delivered at Beeson Divinity School. And we're coming upon the Reformation season, and so we've chosen one of the great classic lectures by Dr. Alistair E. McGrath, The Reformation, a Living Option for Today. These were given at Beeson Divinity School as a part of our Reformation Heritage Lecture Series. Dr. McGrath, of course, is so well known, no doubt to all of you who are listening, one of the great writers and speakers and thinkers of our time today. He's from Ireland originally uh, and has a background in the sciences and for a while in his life actually was an atheist, rejected any belief in God, but came to faith in Christ, developed real expertise in theology, historical theology, has written many books about the Reformation, about the history of Christian thought. He currently occupies the Chair of Theology, Ministry, and Education at King's College London. It's a newly established chair that he occupied in 2008. Dr. McGrath continues to write prolifically. He's working right now on a new biography of C.S. Lewis that will come out in 2013 as a part of the anniversary of C.S. Lewis's, the 50th anniversary of his death. He also uh, has become a real interlocutor in the field of religion and science. One of his fascinating books is called Surprised by Meaning, Science, Faith, and How We Make Sense of Things. And as a former atheist himself, he has been able to enter into dialogue with what we call the new atheism, Richard Dawkins, people like that, and has provided a very clear, helpful Christian response to that movement of our times. But today, and in this lecture, we're going back to his work on the Reformation, and he's really speaking about the theme of faith. This is a great lecture to kind of get into the thought of Luther and Calvin. He quotes both of them a lot in this lecture. And he reminds us that there's a connection between faith and doubt. We sometimes think of those as polar opposites. But Calvin himself says that there is no true faith that is not tinged with doubt. And Alistair McGrath in this lecture talks about the relationship between faith and doubt and that a weak faith can be a genuine faith. Uh, we don't always uh, need to think of faith as being totally uh, strong in every respect. There's a weakness to faith, and doubt has a role to play in that. And then there's a section in this lecture on Luther, and particularly on the theology of the cross, in which Alistair McGrath points out that Luther takes us back to the cross, and the cross challenges an over-reliance on experience, that we should not, in thinking about faith, rely primarily on our experience, because that will let us down. And the cross is the place where our experience meets the mercy of God. And then there's a final section on what he calls the reassurance of our faith, in which he deals with the sacraments and the way in which what the Reformers call the visible sign, uh, the visible words of God, the Lord's Supper and Baptism, that this reminds us of the gracious promises of God, and this reassures us of our faith in the midst of doubt. So this is a great introduction to the theme of faith, delivered with great clarity and precision, as everything uh, Dr. McGrath does. And so we take you now to the chapel of Beeson Divinity School and a Reformation lecture by Dr. Alistair E. McGrath, The Reformation, A Living Option Today. Well, again, it's very good to be with you to give this second and final lecture in this Reformation Heritage Series. And you remember that last time we met, I was making the point that the Reformers were theologians in the sense of people who were concerned to wrestle with the Word of God, knowing that it made a difference to the lives and souls of their believers. And so this morning I've chosen a pastoral theme, 
a theme in which the reformers are addressing the real needs of ordinary Christian believers. But they address those pastoral needs on the basis of a rigorous and well-thought-through theology. For them, there is no compartmentalization, as if pastoralia is one thing, theology is something different. Here is a lively and responsible approach to the care of souls, which is grounded in the objective truth of the word and of God. Too often these things have gone their separate way. In the Reformers, we have a model, a model of how to bring theology and pastoral work together that I think challenges us to make sure they never go their separate way again. And my theme today is that of faith, doubt, and reassurance. I want to ask what the Reformers had to say on these great themes of the Christian faith. And all of you will know that the theme of justification by faith is of central importance to the Reformation. The Reformation laid a new emphasis on the importance of this theme of faith, personal and institutional trust in God. And therefore, it's only to be expected that they will deal with the theme of faith and doubt and reassurance in their writings. So let me begin with John Calvin's definition of faith. Calvin defines faith like this. We shall have a right definition of faith if we say that it is a steady and certain knowledge of the divine benevolence towards us which is founded upon the truth of the gracious promise of God in Christ and is both revealed to our minds and sealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And as I've read that, some of you will feel it's a very fine definition. Others of you will say it seems to leave no room for doubt. Listen to these words again. A steady and certain knowledge of the divine benevolence towards us. And all of you who are pastors will say, well, we are only too aware that what ought to be a steady and certain knowledge wavers at times. How does Calvin deal with that? And interestingly, Calvin stresses that the theological certainty of faith does not necessarily lead to psychological certainty. It's perfectly consistent with a sustained wrestling with doubt and anxiety on the part of the believer. Here is how he continues. When we stress that faith ought to be certain and secure, we do not have in mind a certainty without doubt or a security without any anxiety. Rather, we affirm that believers have a perpetual struggle with their own lack of faith and are far from possessing a peaceful conscience never interrupted by any disturbance. In other words, Calvin is aware that there are two elements to faith. Last time we met, I stressed that there is a Godward and a humanward side to this. And Calvin's point is that a total reliability on God's part is not always matched by total conviction on our part. Faith can be a steady and certain knowledge of God, because God is steady and certain. But in that is frail and weak, sinful human beings who have to respond to this, our apprehension of that certainty is often clouded with uncertainty. Edward A. Dowie of Princeton Theological Seminary um, wrote as follows on Calvin's doctrine of faith. If the bare words of his definition of faith make it steady and certain knowledge, we must notice that such faith never is realized. We could formulate a description of existing faith for him as, quote, a steady and certain knowledge invariably attacked by vicious doubts and fears over which it is finally victorious. So faith then is sustained by hope a confident expectation that the contradictions and disappointments of this world will be resolved and ended, seen from the perspective of the resurrection. So let me begin to explore the theme of faith in a little more detail. What does this little word faith mean 
in the Reformation understanding of the term. And here I'm going to turn to Luther, who will guide us as he thinks out loud about what this word actually means. Luther's basic point is that the fall of Genesis 3 is above all a fall from faith. Faith is a right relationship with God. To have faith is to live as God intends us to live. And Luther makes three points concerning faith, which I'd like to explore with you this morning. I'll summarize them now and then explore each of them individually. First of all, faith has a personal rather than a purely historical reference. Secondly, faith concerns trust in the promises of God. And thirdly, faith unites the believer to Christ. So let me begin with the first of these three points. Faith has a personal rather than a purely historical reference. Luther argues that a faith which is content merely to believe in the historical reliability of the Gospels is not a saving faith. Sinners are perfectly capable of trusting in the historical details of the Gospels, but these facts by themselves are not adequate for true Christian faith. Saving faith concerns believing and trusting that Christ was born for us personally and has accomplished for us the work of salvation. Luther puts it like this, and this is quite an extended quote, but it's important. I have often spoken about two kinds of faith. The first goes like this. You believe that it is true that Christ is a person who is described and proclaimed in the Gospels, but you do not believe that he is such a person for you. You doubt if you can receive that from him, And you think, yes, I'm sure he's that person for someone else, like Peter or Paul, or for religious and holy people. But is he that person for me? Can I confidently expect to receive anything from him? You see, this faith is nothing. It receives nothing of Christ and tastes nothing of him either. It cannot feel joy nor love of him. This is a faith related to Christ, but not a faith in Christ. The only faith which deserves to be called Christian is this. You believe unreservedly that it is not only for Peter and the saints that Christ is such a person, but also for you yourself. In fact, for you more than anyone else. And again, you will know that Luther's works resonate with Latin phrases like pro nobis or pro me, for us, for me. That Christ died is history. That Christ died for me is the gospel. Those two words make all the difference. Faith then has a personal, not simply a historical reference. Luther's second point is that faith is about trust. And again, that Latin word fiducia, trust, resonates throughout Luther's writings. Luther is stressing that faith is not about simply recognizing that God makes promises, but that those promises are trustworthy and may be trusted. And to illustrate this point, Luther uses the analogy of a ship. He writes, Everything depends upon faith. The person who does not have faith is like someone who has to cross the sea, but is so frightened that he doesn't trust the ship. And so he stays where he is and is never saved because he will not get on board and cross over. So faith is not simply believing that something is true. It is being prepared to act upon the belief that it is true and be transformed by that belief. Faith is not simply about believing that that ship exists. It's about stepping into it and entrusting yourself to it. So what are we being asked to believe? Are we being asked simply to have faith in faith? In other words, faith in our ability to trust. For Luther, the answer is no. Faith is about trusting in the promises of God and the integrity and faithfulness of the God who made those promises. Let me read some more from Luther. 
it is necessary that the man who is about to confess his sins puts his trust only and completely in the most gracious promise of God. That is, he must be certain that the one who has promised forgiveness to the man who confesses his sins will most faithfully fulfill his promise. For we are to glory not in the fact that we confess our sins, but in the fact that God has promised pardon to those who confess their sins. In other words, we are not to glory on account of the worthiness of our confession, but on account of the truth and certainty of his promises. And it's here that Luther has a decisive point to make, because we naturally have this, this tendency to assume that the harder you believe, the better. Luther's point is that it's not the extent to which you believe that really matters, it's the reliability of the one in whom you put your trust. Faith is only as strong as the one in whom we believe and trust. The efficacy of faith does not rest upon the intensity with which we believe, but in the reliability of the one in whom we believe. It is not the greatness of our faith, but the greatness of our God, which really counts. And again, here is Luther putting this in his own way. Even if my faith is weak, I still have exactly the same treasure and the same Christ as others. It is like two people, each of whom owns a hundred dollars. One may carry them around in a paper sack, the other in an iron chest. But despite these differences, they both own the same treasure. The Christ who you and I own is one and the same, irrespective of the strength or weakness of your faith or mine. You and I could believe passionately, strongly, intensely in someone who is inherently unworthy of that trust. The intensity of our faith does not make him trustworthy. Luther's point is that in that we are dealing with our God who is worthy of trust, even our weak faith is able to achieve much. Thirdly, Luther stresses that faith unites us with Christ himself. It is not simply about believing that God makes promises, nor that those promises are worthy of trust. It is about receiving and entering into what is being promised to us. And Luther at one point defines faith as a grasping faith which reaches out and takes hold of the risen Christ. For Luther, faith is not simply belief in Christ. It's about union with Christ by which faith establishes an unbreakable link between the believer and Christ. And Luther stresses that this relationship is to be thought of in strongly personal terms. Here's how he describes it in the writing of 1520, using a marriage analogy. Faith unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. As Paul teaches us, Christ and the soul become one flesh by this mystery. And if they are one flesh, and if the marriage is for real, then it follows that everything that they have is held in common, whether good or evil. So the believer can boast of and glory in whatever Christ possesses, as though it were his or her own. And whatever the believer has, Christ claims as his own. Let us see how this works out and see how it benefits us. Christ is full of grace, life and salvation. The human soul is full of sin, death and damnation. Now let faith come between them. Sin, death and damnation will be Christ's. And grace, life and salvation will be the believers. We come out of this the better, as you can see. But Luther's point is enormously helpful. How often have you been told that this whole approach to thinking about salvation rests on a legal fiction? 
an arbitrary transference of Christ's merit to us. Luther's point is this. Here is a real bond of union in which everything that Christ has becomes ours, really ours, by virtue of this real union. It's not an arbitrary connection. It is a living, organic connection established by faith. And all that Christ is becomes ours. Faith is like a wedding ring, as Luther puts it. This is a real and personal relationship with God. Again, Philip Melanchthon, Luther's colleague at Wittenberg, wrote, To know Christ is to know his benefits. Knowing Christ in an abstract way is an impossibility. To really know Christ in the full sense of the word is to be transformed by him as we relate to him. And elsewhere, Calvin makes a very helpful point. If we are really united to Christ by faith, then we are made like Christ in the process of sanctification. Sanctification is being conformed to the likeness of Christ. In other words, you and I, who already are in Christ, become like him as the Holy Spirit works within us. There's a real organic process at work within us. So faith, then, is of central importance to Luther. It is not simply belief in God. It is not even simply trust in God. It is about being open to God and receiving God and being transformed by God. A profoundly rich idea. But that brings me to the negative side of faith, which is doubt. How on earth do the reformers deal with the perennial human tendency to fall victim to doubt? And again, as I stressed, the reformers are pastors, men and women who knew that ordinary Christian believers wrestled with doubts, and they addressed this. And what I want to do is to look at two different strategies developed by Luther and Calvin to cope with the existence of doubt. One of the questions that Luther asks is this. What sort of factors make us doubt in the first place? And Luther gives an answer which goes like this. One of the main reasons why we fall victim to doubt is that we sense that there's a contradiction between faith and experience. In other words, the way in which we experience the world, the way in which we experience God, seems to contradict what we believe. If reason or experience seems to contradict the promises of God, we're tempted to believe that reason or experience are somehow more reliable than the gospel itself. So Luther addresses this in terms of the theology of the cross. And it is such an important part of Luther's approach to the Christian life, but I want to spend some time looking at it. Luther's basic point is that faith takes leave of experience and reason and reaches out beyond them to grasp at something which in the end neither reason nor experience can deliver. Here is a phrase Luther uses, which some of you will find baffling, but I think as you reflect on it, you'll see what he's getting at. Faith, he wrote, is a free surrender and a joyful wager on the unseen, untried, and unknown goodness of God. You will say, there is a problem there, there's something wrong with that, because after all, we know what God is like through Christ. But Luther's point is slightly different. He is saying that there is no way that either reason or experience can ever allow us to see or try or know God. In putting our faith in God, we are going beyond what reason and experience allow. And as a result, reason and experience are going to be in tension with faith. Again, Luther, to believe in Christ is the most difficult of all things in that is to be set, moved away from the world of the senses into the world which lies beyond the senses, 
namely into the invisible, most high, and incomprehensible God. So what I'd like to do now is begin to look at Luther's theology of the cross, explaining why it's so important, and then showing you how you can use it in counseling people who are having difficulties with doubt. Let me begin by putting this in its historical context. The year 1517 and the year 1519 are often seen as being high points in Luther's early career. 1517 is the posting of the 95 Theses. 1519 is the Leipzig Disputation. And yet in the year 1518, Luther went to Heidelberg to dispute with some fellow members of his order about the nature of the gospel. And in the course of this Heidelberg disputation, Luther begins to develop his theology of the cross. And this theology argues that the cross is the absolute center of the Christian faith. All statements about God must be grounded in the cross of Christ. Luther expresses the centrality of the cross in a series of terse statements, such as the famous statements, the cross alone is our theology, and the cross puts everything to the test. And Luther draws a distinction between what he calls the theologian of glory, who looks for God outside the cross, and a theologian of the cross, who is prepared to look on God's face as he is revealed in the cross. Luther argues like this. Try and imagine what it must have been like to have been present on the very first Good Friday. To watch Christ taken from you, nailed to a cross, and die. If you are relying on experience, Luther says, you would experience a profound sense of God's absence. There was no way in which God seemed to be present on that day. And so Luther argues, experience would conclude that God simply wasn't there. Jesus' cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, would simply have reinforced this impression that God was totally absent. But Luther's point is this. From the standpoint of the resurrection, you and I can see that God was indeed present on that first Good Friday. He was present at that scene, working out the salvation of the world. Where, where experience saw no sign of God's presence, Faith is able to look at that same scene and see God working out the salvation of the world in a hidden and mysterious manner. And Luther's point is this, to rely on experience in the end is to fail to see what God is doing in his world. The standpoint of faith is necessary in order to understand what is going on? Now Luther uses this to make a powerful attack on the role of experience in theology. He's arguing that the cross puts a very large question mark against the theological reliability of experience. And Luther's point is, is more profound than that. He is saying that there is a natural human tendency to trust in ourselves, in our perception of the situation. Luther defines sin at one point as being incurvatus in se, bent in on yourself, looking inwards to your own experience, instead of looking outwards to the gracious and reliable promises of God. And Luther's point is that the crucifixion of Christ brings home to us the bankruptcy, the inadequacy of human experience. Experience is going to be in contradiction with faith, because God is doing things which experience can never discern. Experience says, God abandoned Christ. Faith says, 
God worked out the salvation of the world through Christ and vindicated him in all that he did. Again, experience looks at the cross and says, there is a scene of meaninglessness and hopelessness. Faith looks at the cross and says, there is a scene of profound meaning in which God is surrendering himself to death and suffering for us. And a scene of hopefulness in that you and I can suffer and die in hope from this moment onwards. So again, Luther is stressing that experience and faith can too easily go their separate ways. Experience needs to be interpreted. More than interpreted, it needs to be criticized and say, this may be the way you feel, but this isn't the way in which things actually are. Now again, I'm a visitor to this country, and I may have got this wrong. You must apologize if, if I haven't got this right. But a lot of Americans talk to me in terms like this. This is the way I feel it is, therefore this is the way it is. In other words, personal experience is very often given enormous weight in thinking about things religious as other things as well. And Luther is saying that we must put our feelings to the test by asking whether they really are reliable. Experience needs to be interpreted. Let me give you um, an example which um, Luther, I hasten to add, does not give, but it makes the point quite well. Let's suppose you are visiting Scotland. And as I guess you know, Scotland is cold even at the best times of the year. And to counteract this, the Scotch, have, the Scot the Scotch people have developed a, a distilling industry to try and keep themselves warm. I want you to imagine that it's a very cold night and you're visiting a Scottish friend and you come in shivering. Your Scottish friend might well say to you, you know, what you need is a wee dram, you know, a glass of whiskey. I want you to imagine that, that you drink this. If you do, you will feel a sensation of being warmed up. And if you relied on experience, you'd say, I'm warming up. I feel that way, therefore that's the way it is. If you were to go out into the cold night, you would be in trouble because you are, you are not warming up at all. You are losing heat. All that's happening is the blood vessels are rising to the surface, giving off heat. You're cooling down. You feel you're warming up. Experience needs to be criticised if you're going to survive in these cold Scottish nights. But Luther's point, I think, is very, very powerful because all of us tend to make experience of dominant importance in spirituality. I do not feel that God is present in my life. I feel far from God. I do not feel close to Christ. How many people do you know who have lost their faith because they have rested so much on their experience? So often people come to faith, they have an enormously powerful experience of the presence of God. And then as time goes on, it begins to wane. And their conclusion, because I no longer experience God to be present as I once did, he no longer is present. Luther's point is this. We must learn to stop looking inwards, relying on our experience, and instead look outwards to the continuing and reliable promises of God. Again, that idea of sin being bent inwards, looking inwards, trusting in our perception of the situation. Luther is saying we must learn to trust in the promises of God and that our experience of a situation may not be right. You may feel that God is far away. That doesn't mean that he is far away. So that then is one approach to the question of doubt. Luther is saying simply that experience is unreliable as a source of theological reflection. But there is another approach which is due to John Calvin, and I want to spend a few moments looking at that. For Calvin, faith is an act of will. 
And again, you'll remember that in the last lecture I gave, I noted Calvin's characteristic emphasis upon the interrelatedness of our knowledge of God and our knowledge of ourselves. The two cannot be had in isolation. It is one thing to know God as the totally reliable and unfailing creator and sustainer of the world. But that knowledge cannot be had in isolation from ourselves, known as fallen, frail, and sinful, and unwilling through sin to trust fully in God. Calvin's point is this. Faith is a steady and certain knowledge of the divine benevolence towards us, founded upon the truth of the gracious promise of God in Christ. But that deals with the Godward side of the relation. That is defining what God is like and his reliability. Calvin then says, we have to deal with the human being, the sinful person who wants to learn to trust in God. Sin prevents us from trusting God fully, and Calvin argues that doubt and anxiety are essentially due to a lack of trust in God. It reflects a shortcoming on our part, rather than upon the part of God. Again, Calvin's words. In the present life, we are never so fortunate as to be cured of the disease of mistrust, and entirely filled and possessed by faith. And so conflicts arise when unbelief, which remains in what is left of our former natures, rises up to attack faith. So Calvin therefore suggests that one method of coping with doubt is to renew our commitment to God in a revitalized act of will. Again, here's Calvin. Here is the main hinge upon which faith turns that we do not regard the promises of mercy which God offers to us as true only outside ourselves, but not all within us. Rather, we should make them ours by inwardly embracing them. And so at last, the confidence which Paul calls peace is born. So Calvin is saying that doubt is not so much a matter of the head as a matter of the heart. It is not simply about intellectual difficulties or hesitations with the gospel. It concerns a radical lack of willingness on the part of a sinful human heart to trust fully in the goodness of God. We always hold back, don't fully commit ourselves to God. And Calvin is suggesting that doubt arises partly because we always have one foot in the camp of unbelief and the other foot in the camp of faith. We are always caught up in this tension because we have not yet fully committed ourselves to the risen Christ. And Calvin will give analogies um, to try and make this point very powerfully. For example, he argues that the Psalter bears a powerful witness to this struggle on the part of believers. And at one point, Calvin even suggests that he himself had doubts similar to those that are there in the Psalter. For example, commenting on Psalm 22, verse 1, which reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Calvin writes as follows. This is precisely what all believers experience daily. When someone is, is overwhelmed by this kind of perplexity, it submerges them in unbelief and they are no longer willing to do anything about it. But if faith should come to their aid, the person who, on the basis of the evidence, regard, regards God as cross or alienated, discovers his hidden and secret grace in the mirror of the promises. They alternate between two contradictory states of mind. On the one hand, Satan, showing the signs of the wrath of God, urges them to despair and tries to cause them to fall. On the other, faith recalls them to the promise, teaches them to wait patiently and to trust in God until he again shows his fatherly face. So again, Calvin is saying faith is about an act of will. Let me read you that sentence again. Faith recalls them to the promise, 
teaches them to wait patiently and to trust in God until he again shows his fatherly face. So that then is Calvin's emphasis on the importance of the will. Calvin's solution is not a simplistic declaration that you should believe harder or have more faith. He insists that our weak faith is a real faith. For example, his English follower, John Rogers, puts this point especially well. He writes, Weak faith is true faith, as precious, though not as great, as strong faith. The same Holy Spirit, the author, the same gospel, the instrument. For it is not the strength of our faith that saves, but the truth of our faith. That sentence again, it is not the strength of our faith that saves, but the truth of our faith. Calvin's concern is simply to point out that there is a real weakness of will on the part of Christians. In our minds we may believe that something is true, but in our hearts we have not yet fully accepted it. And Calvin is asking, not that we should believe harder, as if believing that something um, makes it more true, but rather we should try and commit ourselves more fully to the one in whom we believe. So I've talked a little bit about that. I've also talked a bit about faith. Now I want to move to my third theme, which is that of reassurance. You have noticed how the reformers were intensely aware of the problem of doubt. For example, Calvin's comment on Psalm 22, this is precisely what all believers experience daily. Maybe an overstatement, but certainly someone who is aware that doubt is a real problem in the Christian life. And you'll have noticed that for Calvin, human weakness lies at the heart of doubt. And in this final section, I want to look at means by which you and I can be reassured. Reassured of God's goodness and benevolence towards us and of the reality of his promises. In doing this, I'm going to look at one of the means by which the reformers attempted to deepen the quality of the faith of their people in particular detail, and that is the sacraments. Anger comes as a surprise to virtually all of us to learn that the reformers saw the sacraments as being such powerful signs and reminders of the grace of God. But it's true. We need to remember that the Reformation was born in controversy. Controversy can be helpful in that it stimulates exploration and clarification. And by looking at the early debates concerning the person of Christ or the Trinity, you can see how those controversies in the early church stimulated the church to further reflection. But there's also a negative side to this. In the heat of a debate, it's very easy to overstate or overreact. So much rests upon the outcome of the debate that very often a point is overstated or overlooked in the heat of the moment. And many Protestants, perhaps fearing that an affirmative attitude to the sacraments might be seen as a concession to Catholic opponents, have tended to treat sacraments with less appreciation than they deserve. To give you an example from Victorian England, um, in Victorian England it was routine for Anglican evangelicals to be low churchmen, having no place for the church or sacraments in their theology or spirituality. But we have moved on since then. I think perhaps the time might now be ripe to begin to realize that what the reformers say about the sacraments can be helpful in our own church life and our own private thinking about the reality of God's promises of grace and so on. As I said earlier, a central theme of the Reformation is its emphasis on God's accommodation to our weakness. As Calvin puts this, God knows what we are like, and knowing that we are weak, knowing that we have difficulty in apprehending him, he comes down to our level. For Calvin, incarnation is of central importance because it is a visual aid to God coming down to our level. 
He doesn't simply speak a language we can understand. He enters into our situation and speaks to us from within it. I think there's a very powerful model there for preachers. If God's prepared to come down to our level, we ought to come down to our people's level rather than miles above it. But Calvin argues that the sacraments are an accommodation to human weakness. Knowing our difficulty in receiving and trusting God's promises, God has supplemented his word with visible and tangible signs of his gracious favor. They are an accommodation to our abilities. For example, Melanchthon argued that the sacraments were primarily a gracious divine accommodation to human weakness and wrote, Signs are the means by which we may be both reminded and reassured of the word of faith. In an ideal world, Melanchthon suggests, human beings would be prepared to trust God on the basis of his word alone. But one of the weaknesses of fallen human nature is its need for signs. For Melanchthon, sacraments are signs which enhance our trust in God by representing his promises in a more tangible and visible way. Here's what Melanchthon writes. In order to mitigate this distrust in the human heart, God has added signs to the word. So sacraments are signs of the grace of God, added to the promises of grace in order to reassure and strengthen the faith of fallen human beings. Luther uses the term pledge to emphasize the security-giving character of the Lord's Supper. The bread and wine reassure us of the reality of the divine promise of forgiveness, making it easier for us to accept it, and having accepted it, to hold to it firmly. Here's what he writes. In order that we might be certain of this promise of Christ, and truly rely on it without any doubt, he has given us the most precious and costly seal and pledge, his true body and blood given under the bread and wine. These are the very same as those with which he obtained for us the gift and the promise of this precious and gracious treasure, surrendering his life in order that we might receive and accept the promised grace. So the bread and wine of the communion service remind us both of the reality and the cost of the grace of God and of the need for our response to this grace in faith. So Luther's point is that the Lord's Supper reminds us of the reality of those promises and also of the enormous costliness of those promises. It makes us easier for us to respond by presenting it to us in a way which it's easier for weak souls to understand. The death of Christ for Luther is a token of both the trustworthiness of the grace of God and its enormous price, not to us, but to God. And Luther develops this idea by using the idea of a testament, understood in the sense of a last will and testament, when he writes, Christ declares that this is the New Testament in his blood poured out for us. Everyone knows that a testament is a promise made by someone who is about to die, in which he names his bequest and appoints his heirs. So a testament involves, in the first place, the death of the testator, and in the second, the promise of an inheritance and the naming of an heir. Luther's point, then, is that thinking about a testament, linking it with the Lord's Supper, allows us insights into the gospel itself. The communion service for Luther makes three points. One, it affirms the promises of grace and forgiveness made in Christ. Secondly, it identifies those to whom those promises are made. In other words, those who believe. And then finally, it proclaims the reality of Christ's death. And with that death, 
the promises come into operation. The inheritance that is promised is now given to those to whom it is promised. And again, you you remember that in Romans chapter 8, Paul stresses that all those who are united to Christ will share in his sufferings and also in his glory. And Luther's making the same point here. And the Lord's Supper, quote, is a promise of the forgiveness of sins made to us by God, and such a promise as has been confirmed by the death of the Son of God. By proclaiming the death of Christ, the community of faith affirms that the precious promises of forgiveness and eternal life are now effective for those with faith. Now an obvious question arises here. Why on earth should we be so concerned about material things like water or bread and wine? Surely the whole point of the gospel is to point us away from these things towards the risen Christ and all his benefits. And Luther and Calvin agree the sacraments are always pointing away from themselves. In Dean George's office, there is a picture of the Eisenheim altarpiece by Grunewald. And in that uh, altarpiece, John the Baptist points to Christ, pointing away from himself towards Christ. And Luther is arguing that sacraments are doing the same things. It is not the bread or the wine or the water that matters. It is what they are pointing to. They are reminders of the grace of God. Luther writes, in the sacraments we see nothing wonderful, just ordinary water, bread and wine, and the words of the preacher. There is nothing spectacular about this. But we must learn to discover what a glorious majesty lies hidden beneath these despised things. It is with Christ in the Incarnation. We see a frail, weak and mortal human being Yet he is none other than the majesty of God himself. So Luther is stressing that this can be a help to faith in that it reminds us of the grace of God. Zwingli also helps us to think about this by stressing the way in which the sacraments are associated with events. And he gives us an illustration to help us think this through. How can the communion bread be different from any other bread? Zwingli gives us two analogies which I think are helpful. In the first place, he asks us to imagine a ring, simply placed perhaps on a table. It's a piece of gold, but it has no associations. In the second case, the ring is placed on the finger of a king or a queen. And what was once simply a piece of metal now has personal associations of majesty, power and authority. So it is, Vindy says, with the bread of the communion. It remains ordinary bread, but it serves as a focus for our remembrance of all that Christ did and achieved for us. Or again, Vindy says, think of a lily growing in a field. It has no associations. Now I think of the same lily plucked and woven with other lilies into a bridal crown. The associations of joy, rejoicing and commitment are all there. And so it is with the bread of the communion service, which becomes a focus for the memory of Christ's death and his resurrection. It stays the same, but memories, excitement, expectations are all linked to it. And the third analogy that Zwingli gives, which many find helpful, is that of the merchant who is setting off on a long journey from which he has promised one day to return. And he leaves his wife a ring with his picture as a reminder. A reminder both of him and of his promise to return. So that while he is away, his wife may look for the day when her husband returns. The sacraments are meant to be reminders of the grace of God, reminders of people like you and I, whose faith is weak and needs all the support they can get. So understood in this way, the the sacraments are helpful in that they remind us 
of the power of God and his grace. So the theme of reassurance then. I simply looked at one area, but there is so much more that the reformers have to say. Remember what Luther said, distrust experience. Instead, think of Good Friday. Think of this world and all its riddles, its unexplained events, its sadness, its perplexity as being like that first Good Friday. Just as the first Easter day resolved the riddles of that Good Friday by showing us the way in which God was present and active on that day. So one day you and I can believe that the riddles, enigmas and suffering of this world will one day stand revealed in the light of a glorious resurrection which will make sense of what now puzzles and distresses us. We may see darkly at present, but one day all will be made known. But already I have run out of time and I have only begun to explore some of the possible use to which our great Reformation heritage can be put. And all I can say is that there is so much more on so many things that I would like to say. But I hope I will have persuaded you that you and I are heirs to an enormously rich tradition, which is theologically informed and pastorally concerned and pastorally credible. It's a tradition that is orientated towards responsible and caring ministry in the world. And yet it's also a tradition which is grounded and safeguarded by solid theological reflection. In this Reformation Heritage Week, you have much to celebrate, but more than that, you have also something to take and make your own as you go forward to minister in this great nation in the years that lie ahead. And with that in mind, let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, the gift of your son, and the gift of eternal life. We thank you that you have called us, poor, weak, and sinful human beings, to be the stewards of your grace. And Lord, we thank you for the faithful witness of past generations. We ask, Lord, that we might learn from both their examples and from their mistakes, confident in the knowledge that we share the same gospel and the same responsibility. And we ask, Lord, that one day you would gather them and us together in your glorious kingdom to praise your name forevermore. In the name of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And now I want to invite you to a special conference that we're having here at Beeson, November 1 and 2, 2011, our Reformation Spirituality Conference. You know, a lot of people, when they think about the Reformation, they regard it as a great event in history, economically, socially, politically, had a tremendous kind of a watershed complex of events. All that's true. But in this conference, we want to get back to the spiritual core at the heart of this great renewal movement and ask the question, what can we learn today in our own spiritual formation from the Reformers who forged such important patterns of discipleship, prayer, Bible study, worship, and living out of the Christian faith. Dr. Herman Selderhus from the Netherlands will be one of our plenary speakers, and also Dr. Carla Aperlou Boersma, who directs the project REFO 500. This is a consortium of schools and institutions that are coming together in preparation for the celebration of the 500th anniversary of Luther's posting of the 95 Theses on the Castle Church door at Wittenberg. In addition to these scholars, we also have a number of our own wonderful Beeson faculty. Dr. Gerald Bray will be back with us, Dr. Carl Beckwith, our new Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Dr. David Hogg. It's going to be a great event of learning, of prayer, of worship together. And so we invite you to come and join us for the Reformation Spirituality Conference, November 1 and 2, right here at Beeson Divinity School. And you can register online at our website www.beesondivinity.com Come join us for this special event. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. 
You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.